Do we retrain these people? Do we put our finances and, and, and efforts into retraining or do we do something else about it? Because ultimately, if you believe that violence is the logical consequence of an institutional culture that privileges officers' survival over public safety, what can the public be doing about that? Like, how do we watch these people that are supposed to be watching us? What should we be doing to say, actually, I think we should be doing this? Welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Sometimes I like to take a step back from politics to think about some of the other issues that face our country. And the other day, six police cars came screeching to a halt outside my home, and then all of the officers poured out of their vehicles and went down the street. I have no idea what the problem was. They drove in really fast, and then they got out of their car, but they weren't running. And then they parked in the middle of the street, so no cars could drive on either side and no one could get out of their driveways. And maybe that was for our safety, or maybe the neighborhood residents didn't even occur to them at all. But I will tell you, I wasn't going to go outside while they were there because I grew up trusting the police. I grew up in Canada. I grew up with this skin color. And now I find I don't particularly trust the police. At the very least, they make me nervous. I think most of us can agree that there are some major structural problems with American police and policing. And this is why the public's trust in the police decreases every year. But the question is, why? And what can we do about it? We can't very well live in a country of laws if law enforcement itself is so deeply problematic. To talk about this today, I've invited Michael Sierra Arevalo, the author of The Danger Imperative, Violence, Death, and the Soul of Policing. Michael received his PhD in sociology from Yale University and is an assistant professor at the Department of Sociology at the University of Texas at Austin. His research has been published in leading journals, including the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, Criminology, Law, and Society. And his writing and research is widely featured everywhere from the Los Angeles Times to the Washington Post, Slate, GQ, and NPR. Michael also served on the City of Austin's Public Safety Commission from 2020 to 2023. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, writer, professor, and public safety expert, Michael Sierra Arevalo. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you for coming. I mean, the police are something I'm actually quite fascinated with as I kind of grew up seeing them as protectors. And now I find myself quite wary of them and often scared of them in big groups. Uh, I don't trust them. And uh, I think that's part of the problem, the public's feelings around the police and if that's justified or not. But we see it all the time now, people really questioning how they should feel about the police and the police themselves feeling kind of underappreciated, isolated. And then the whole thing plays in on itself. I think it's absolutely right. We're at a moment right now, which coincidentally is sort of history repeating itself. This is a a cycle that we see in history. Folks that were around in the 1960s, I wasn't, but they can tell you about what that felt like to see cities burning, to see the police literally attacked and those images being piped into people's television screens at home. There's a great deal of fear, uncertainty. So that's not to minimize what people are feeling now, but this is also to say that this is a tale as old as time in the U.S. Yeah. No, I often say if we ever think that like it's never been this bad, it's only because we didn't live through the 60s. <laughs> I think the 60s were just <laughs> that's right. bananas. Okay. So in writing your book, The Danger Imperative, you took a really deep dive into the working life of patrol officers. And you've essentially rejected this idea that they're either heroes or villains. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? 
maybe it helps to kind of talk about how I got into the work sure. because that was my first real introduction to police. So I'd, I'd been stopped when I was living in Texas. I got arrested for shoplifting when I was like 15. So I'd had some experiences. I wouldn't say they were particularly positive, but I wasn't like overtly mistreated in the way that some people might have expected a young Latino boy to be treated. They weren't great experiences, but I wasn't like beaten or anything. Uh, not that that's the bar. Fast forward and I'm in New Haven. I'm in grad school and I'm involved with some violence reduction work. And as a part of that work, I have to work with police officers to understand sort of the landscape of violence in the city. And I was struck by how mundane they were. They were majority white. They were almost entirely male. They spent a lot of time on the bench press and did a lot of curls, clearly, and they were bald. And But besides those things, they were just seemingly very normal. They reminded me of my conservative friend's dads from growing up here in Texas. Uh, and they talked about their kids in school, or they talked about the boat, or they talked about going on vacation, or about the work schedule they hated. And that that stuck out to me. Fast forward, Michael Brown is killed uh, by police in Ferguson. Eric Garner is killed by police in New York. And I was skeptical that I was going to be able to understand the how and why of police violence or something like a survey. And so I thought, well, you know what, I'll go and observe the work directly. And that's what I did. I got in a car and a thousand hours later, uh, across three cities, interviewing a hundred officers, you know, I wrote the danger imperative and something that I try to emphasize in the book is that this is not a story of bad apples. This is not a story of really individual officers. This is a story about a system, a structure, which if I'm being honest, you could put me in that system, in that structure. And the cultural forces at play are incredibly powerful. I think that I have to be humble and others should be humble when they say like, oh, I would never do that. You haven't been inside a police department. You haven't seen how that space operates. You haven't seen the gravity of that culture and how it shifts people's behavior and outlook in really, really profound ways. Right. So this concept of bad apples, because I mean, I always say we can't just say it's a few bad apples when we talk about police violence because the full expression is a few bad apples spoil the bunch, right? This concept of this institution that's supposed to keep us safe having a few bad apples in there that are racist or terribly violent or hate women, this kind of thing. For most of us looking from the outside, policing in America seems to be kind of deeply broken. Like, Policing is clearly violent as a general nature, uh, but the violence doesn't seem to be distributed equally. There are obvious kind of stark racial disparities that persist in policing, despite decades of efforts to address them. And there now seems to be an ongoing crisis of kind of police legitimacy. People just don't have the same faith in the police that they used to. And that's not just people of color and black people, that's white people too. If you've centered the culture around violence, we can all feel it. And you were saying that you conducted this thousand hours of field work and you were on the job and you personally interviewed all these officers and you found that this idea of the risk of violent death occupied kind of an extraordinary amount of mental space for many officers, more than it probably should, given the objective risks. Is that right? It's certainly the case that the officers that I talked to, without exception, were preoccupied with their safety. There's certainly variations. One officer that I talk about in chapter one in survival school, he's almost a caricature of the warrior cop. I'm talking... You know, he does jujitsu and makes knives in his spare time and posts videos on Instagram of him doing dry fire drills and drawing a knife and shooting. So again, and he talks about 
the Green Berets. He never served, but he's infatuated with the idea of operators and post pictures of the Punisher comic book. And so there's officers like that. But that's, again, almost a caricature. But even the officers that had been on for a long time and had seen for years, decades even, that no, like you don't get into fights that often. And there's usually a way to avoid these things. Even they will say, Yeah, I mean, it could be any call. It could be any traffic stop. There's no such thing as an average call. There's no such thing as a mundane stop. And this was something that was consistent across all different kinds of officers, from the saltiest veteran to the the newest rookie, female officers, male officers, black officers, white officers, Latino officers. It it was consistent across three cities. And so this is an institutional culture. This is something that transcends any individual department or any individual officer. And it's reinforced at all levels of the police department, from the academy, from the day you walk in and are shown these horrendous videos of officers murdered in the line of duty, all the way until the day that you retire, you're receiving reminders of how profoundly dangerous your job is, even when the objective statistical risk of being shot or being murdered on duty is very low. Yeah. So it's the training and the socialization and the culture from the day that you get into it, the kind of the very nature of this job is dangerous. And then you get into the job and that ends up reinforcing your sense of fear and threat. That's why you called the book The Danger Imperative, because this general ideology of the police seems to be that the world itself is a profoundly dangerous place. And the officers are sort of conditioned to see themselves as being in constant danger. And the only way to guarantee their survival is to dominate the citizens that they're meant to protect. And it's this general sense that the police are under siege by criminals. And then on top of that, they're not understood or respected by the citizens. Does that assessment seem correct to you? I think for the most part, that's that's the argument. The danger imperative, as I write about in the book, it's an example of what uh, social scientists call a cultural frame. But to put it in simpler terms, it's a filter. It's a lens that you view the world through. So we all have various frames that we put on at various points in our lives. Some is from when we were students, some is when you're at work, some with your family. And that filters how you perceive things and how you react to things. The danger imperative is violence tinted. That is the sort of lens that you wear. And so where you or I might be able to see an interaction happening and not think too much of it. It's like, oh, it didn't seem that was particularly bad. I didn't really know why that happened. Officers are trained to understand interactions through the lens of violence. What are the indicators of potential resistance that are happening here? If this person begins to say no to me and doesn't do exactly what I say, that is un- interpreted as signs of a situation that is potentially going to spin out of control. One of the ways that officers behave in the context of of these interactions generally, which you alluded to with domination, is this idea of command presence. Now, I've seen officers use command presence to tremendous effect. And command presence generally means a sort of carriage or demeanor that leads people to believe that you're in charge and that you're competent and that you are confident in that moment, right? You're not second guessing yourself. And I've seen officers use it to tremendous effect and they can sort of dial and ratchet things up and down depending on the situation. I've also seen officers who in the name of command presence, to be very blunt, are just assholes. 
they are just very aggressive with people. And I think that those are the videos that you see, people who had those negative interactions with officers. They don't understand why they're being spoken to in such a coarse way, why they're being treated as if they've done something wrong. That is, for some officers, okay to do that because they need to maintain control because any lack of control opens the door for a potential catastrophe. Right. So if you put your primary attention on violence, it can be like the officers become a threat to themselves because they're they're hypervigilant and then a threat to the citizens, right? Like if you have a person holding a sandwich who doesn't appear to be any sort of threat, but they're not behaving the way the officer thinks they should behave, all of a sudden the threat becomes heightened in that situation. So you got these officers hyper attuned to the risk of attack as if they believe they always have to be prepared to use force against people. And then they often end up using disproportionate force. I think that what I point to in the book is that even even in these cases, right, where you have an officer behaving this way, most of the time, nothing really bad is going to happen, right? The the worst thing that's going to happen here is somebody is disrespected and mistreated, and that's bad, to be very clear. I don't condone that. But these things are not going to result in shootings. They're not going to result in a knockdown, drag-out fight for your life. The irony, of course is that when officers behave this way with people, say they use their command presence poorly or they just become nakedly aggressive, you are ironically enough increasing the likelihood that someone that you're interacting with is going to get really pissed off. You are actually increasing the likelihood that this situation is going to become escalated emotionally and potentially even physically. And so we can't know exactly, you know, from a sort of statistical perspective, well, like what would have happened if the officer hadn't done X, Y, or Z. But I think that that's one of the deep ironies of the danger imperative is that it actually leads officers to behave in ways that we would expect to increase the likelihood that they are going to have to defend themselves from violence. And I think even more problematically, it's increasing the likelihood that they're going to have to use force against somebody that's now, quote unquote, resisting because they're just being jerks. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like scholars of policing call this concept like maintaining the edge. And it's kind of the reason that so many of them seem willing to employ force that seems excessive when we catch it on body cams or on cell phones, that they can't let down the edge because by letting down the edge, it's inviting chaos and danger and they are trying to avoid chaos and danger. And yet, as you're saying, sometimes they're the ones causing the chaos and danger, which makes me think like, is it just that the training is wrong, that there's not enough training or the training isn't long enough because they don't, they certainly don't seem to be getting rid of these few bad apples while in training. I went to a theater conservatory a million years ago and you had to be asked back between one year and the other, right? You had to have enough okay. skill to go back. You had to have potential to actually work in that field. You had to be good enough to be in this acting conservatory for the second year. And I always think, Shouldn't police academies be at least as discerning as theater conservatories with who makes it through, right? Like, personally, mm -hmm. I think police academies should be far longer. I think they should be a two to four year program. I think you should have to learn the law if you're going to be part of the law. I mean, what is your thoughts on the police academy training? Because it seems like we're training them incorrectly and then sending them in the field armed and ready for action. The older I get, the more I find myself wanting to be more intentional about the way I live and the way I eat and the way I take care of my body. 
everything I can do to keep myself from falling apart and keep my mind and my body running smoothly, I'm going to try. I've talked about Mosh Bars before. Mosh is a company founded by Maria Shriver and her son, Patrick Schwarzenegger, with a simple mission to create a conversation about brain health through food, education, and research. Mosh joined forces with the world's top scientists and functional nutritionists to make something beyond your average protein bar. Each Mosh bar is made with all the ingredients that support brain health, like lion's mane, collagen, and omega-3s. And with six delicious flavors, each bar also gives you 12 grams of protein. Plus, they also have a whole line of plant-based protein bars if that's how you eat. I've been so busy lately that I've been eating a Mosh bar a day. I just run out of time to eat and I know that at least if I can get a Mosh bar into my body, I won't be running on complete fumes. I keep one in my bag at all times. I have one in my office. They're an essential part of my non-balanced life. I love them. I used to only eat lemon and white chocolate, but now I'm really into the peanut butter crunch ones too. And here's the best part. Mosh donates a portion of all proceeds from your order to fund gender-based brain health research through the women's Alzheimer's movement. Two-thirds of all Alzheimer's patients are women, and Mosh is working closely to close that gap between men and women's health research. This is a personal mission for Maria. Her father suffered from Alzheimer's, and since then, she and Patrick have dedicated themselves to finding a way to help other families dealing with this debilitating disease. So if you want to find a way to give back to others and fuel your body and brain, Mosh Bars are the perfect choice. Head to moshlife.com politicsgirl to save 20% off plus free shipping on your first six-count trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on your first six-count trial pack. M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash politics girl. Did you know that traditional bedsheets can hold on to more bacteria than a toilet seat? That they can lead to things like acne and allergies and stuffy noses? And it's also, you know, gross. Which is why I'm so happy to tell you about Miracle Made. Miracle Made offers a whole line of self-cleaning, eco-friendly bedding like sheets, pillowcases, and comforters that prevent 99% of bacteria and require three times less laundry. Miracle Made silver-infused sheets prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. Plus, they're just really nice, totally high-quality bedding without totally high prices. So stop sleeping on bacteria. Sleep clean with Miracle. See for yourself. Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl to try Miracle Made Sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo code politicsgirl at checkout, you will get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident with their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep today with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Maid, for continuing to sponsor the Politics Girl podcast. In the spirit of self-care, today's sponsor, OneSkin, is here to help you simplify your skincare regimen. Founded by four PhDs dedicated to skin longevity, one Skin proves you don't need a complicated routine to achieve better skin. Their topical supplements make it easy to help your skin stay younger and healthier without a lot of extra steps. Treating the symptoms rather than the root cause of aging has long been the norm. Most skincare available on the market is designed to provide a temporary reduction in visible signs of aging, addressing just the surface symptoms of an underlining decline in skin health. But OneSkin combines tissue engineering, data analysis, and cutting-edge science to create the world's most effective product to target skin aging. 
OneSkin believes the purpose of skincare is not just to improve how we look, but to optimize our skin's biology so that it's more resilient to the aging process itself. It's next level skincare. The secret? OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. It's the first ingredient scientifically proven to reduce the buildup of synescient cells, those notorious zombie cells that contribute to skin aging. Fewer zombie cells mean healthier, younger looking skin with fewer lines and wrinkles, reduced age spots, strong natural barriers. Who wouldn't want that? I've been using their eye cream for about a month. I like the texture and how quickly it absorbs. I'm hoping for less zombie cells. The less zombies in my life, the better. That is my motto. One Skin is more than skincare. It's about skin longevity, targeting the root causes of aging and helping you look and feel your best every day. Get started today with 15% off using code politicsgirl at oneskin.co. That's 15% off at oneskin.co with code politicsgirl. And after you purchase, if they ask you where you heard about them, please support the show and tell them that we sent you. It's time to expect more from our skincare routine and invest in the health of our skin with One Skin. Our skin does so much for us. Maybe we should return the favor with One Skin. I mean, what is your thoughts on the police academy training? Because it seems like we're training them incorrectly and then sending them in the field armed and ready for action. My view generally is that we're never going to train our way out of the problem. Okay. Um, and by the problem, I mean police violence. Okay. And the simple answer for why that is, is because policing is violent. There's been a lot of talk in recent years about everything from procedural justice training and cultural sensitivity training and de-escalation training. And I'm not saying that those trainings are wrong in and of themselves. I think de-escalation is great and officers should do more of it and they should train more of it. But if you think that de-escalation is going to address racial disparities in police violence, you know, I have a, you know, I have sand to sell you on the beach. <laughs> what I think I point to in the book most clearly is that the kind of training that we're doing is frankly just making things worse. When you take officers and you use training materials like the kind that I found in one of my field sites, which explicitly cites the work of Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, uh, the self-professed founder of the field of killology. And it tells officers in the training documents, you must become the predator to catch the predator. That's a problem. I don't think that we should be spending taxpayer dollars on sending officers to sort of third-party trainings to fulfill their state-mandated yearly training hours that are run by people like Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, or frankly, to any of these, you know, oh, tactical training, yada, yada, that are run by, you know, some, some former Green Beret or some former Marine that started an LLC and now is teaching cops, you know, how to do something, which frankly doesn't have much oversight and are very poorly regulated. But it's not just that. And again, I want to really emphasize for listeners that this it's, is not that the training can be fixed. Even if I had a perfect filtering mechanism to get rid of all the quote unquote racist cops, the bad apples, it was perfect. And every officer that left the academy was consummately trained and they were perfectly egalitarian in how they practiced the law. Policing exists within a broader system of institutions. Nothing that I just mentioned fixes redlining or segregation or income inequality or health inequalities or all the other things that make up what we call structural racism. And so what's going to happen? Well, I'm still going to systematically send cops that are preoccupied with their safety into predominantly black and Latino communities where they, even if they are, quote unquote, perfectly raceless officers, they don't see race, 
which again is a bit of a fantasy, they are going to systematically use violence more in the places where they spend more time. And there's just no way around that. Training is not going to fix that. But shouldn't there be some sort of, uh, like you're talking about de-escalation training is good. I'm a very big believer in not sending the wrong person to do the right job. Like, you know, there someone's having a mental health crisis. I don't necessarily think cops are the right place you know, to go. I would love to see more social workers on the street. I'd love to see more mental health experts that would address these problems with the backup of the police, but the police not in the forefront. Because I find that if you are trained to see violence and cop killers around every corner and how everything can escalate to violence, that's how guns come out too fast. And that's how we end up using violence as a way to address every problem. And then the police end up feeling like they're not part of the community that they're supposed to be protecting and serving because we don't get them and they don't get us. And you know, they're kind of this island on their own. And I think it's becoming a real problem. The problem with the academies to me is as if we are encouraging often angry young men to enter the police academy. And then we give them a gun and we tell them they're in danger. And then we basically give them free reign to beat up and shoot people without consequence. And I understand that this is not a one-size-fits-all situation, that there are many excellent cops out there, but the beliefs that define police ideology, though not universally shared, do tend to be, it's us against them. And I think that has become a problem. The us versus them is very real. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that's actually been around for a very long time. Uh, you know, even this idea of the thin blue line. Yeah. What is the thin blue line? Well, it's officers standing on the thin blue line between order and chaos. But that's that has a lot of things left unsaid, like who is the us and who is the them. And it turns out that us and them is pretty malleable over time. Traditionally in the US, black people have been the them from times of enslavement to emancipation. But it's also them has included a whole bunch of different groups. It's included Mexican people, most recently, it's it's immigrants with a quote-unquote border crisis. In the 1960s and 70s, you begin to include student groups, right? So you have like long-haired white kids at Berkeley that are suddenly part of the them and the communists. And now it's Antifa and any the libs and any number of people. So the them is flexible. The us is also flexible. For a long time, Italians were not allowed on the police force or Irish people. Eventually, they were assimilated into the police force and they became a part of the us, a part of the us within police. And now we have more diverse police departments. It's still overwhelmingly white, to be clear, and overwhelmingly male. But you can actually incorporate black and Latino people and women into police departments. You know, it's one of those unfortunate things that I have to tell my friends at the cocktail party, which is, yeah, I think adding more women and adding more black cops and more Latino cops, it might do something around the edges. We have some evidence to suggest that they would use force less, but it doesn't mean they're going to stop using violence because that's what policing is. I'm all on board with doing more training. We have like comically low hours of training in some places. Yeah. Most departments, particularly big city departments, do do more training than is required by the state. I'm not against more training. I just think that when we're doing the sort of actuarial, where are we going to spend our money, training or trying something else, I'm increasingly of the opinion that it's a great time to try something else. Right. Let me just return you back to that thin blue line thing for a second, because obviously we're seeing the thin blue line and on flags now, on American flags, you know, choosing policing. But to me, the thin blue line means loyalty to the badge above all, right? It's how we get the police seeing their colleagues 
using excessive force or racial slurs or violence against the community and then not saying anything because that would be treasonous to their brothers in arms. Um, this emphasis on loyalty ends up creating a condition for abuse. And I'm someone who's very pro-union, but the police union seems like a little bit like organized crime to me. And they kind of protect the very worst of their ranks and that taints the rest of the group. I mean, I think about that incident during the height of the Black Lives Matter movement when the Buffalo police were kind of coming as a mass down the street and they ended up pushing a 75-year-old peaceful protester so hard he fell to the ground and he was like bleeding. And one officer in the whole group kind of bent over to try and help him and he was pushed aside by the other officer. So his instinct to help, to be good, to serve and protect, you know, was overridden by his instinct to be part of the crew, to be part of his fellow officers. And they were in the mode of dominate, brutalize, intimidate. And that's something I think we really need to address. This kind of, you can't even be the person that checks on the old man on the ground because you need to be up here dominating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that the danger imperative is a big piece of that puzzle. So when you can couch everything in your world as a matter of life and death, where loyalty and the need to show loyalty is necessary, because if officers don't trust me, that might mean that my backup doesn't come. That might mean that people don't come to get my back when I need it. Suddenly, you can find all sorts of reasons to justify why you're not going to report that, yeah, like he got a couple of shots in during that arrest that were not necessary. Yeah, but I can't. I, I can't. Like, I, is is that worth me not having the trust of my fellow officers in this job? Which, to be very clear, is dangerous. It, it's a dangerous job. Officers get assaulted a lot more often than you or I do in the course of our jobs. I'll put it that way. But it sets a different bar for how you make your choices if you begin to believe that everything comes back to whether or not I go home at night. And I think that's something that the union is very good. Unions, but the union, which for one you want to refer to, they tend to emphasize officer safety, officer safety, officer safety, in part because it's an incredibly strong political position from which to argue. Because if I'm for officer safety, I can make it seem like you somehow want more dead cops. And that is not a powerful position for any mayor, any city manager to be arguing from. Yeah, I understand that. But uh, let me ask you then, you're talking about how policing is a dangerous job and we're not going to pretend it's not a dangerous job, but it makes me think of the statistic. I believe this is right. In the past 20 years of FBI data, they had something like 1,001 officers being killed by firearms and 760 dying in car crashes. And I thought, first of all, 1,000 in 20 years seems like a pretty good statistic for a job that works with violent criminals and with guns and is violent. But that's a lot of car crashes, right? And as I understood it, well, police officers are required to wear seatbelts just like the rest of us. You know, the law is supposed to apply to all of us. Often they choose not to. And then they're often speeding through the city streets. And I think you told a story where you found out personally when you were in a ride along that the officer was going about 100 miles an hour without wearing a seatbelt. And then you asked him about it after. What was his thought on that as far as his own personal safety? <laughs> Yeah, so the the irony of that particular case in the book, I believe that was Officer Doyle uh, on the West Coast. This was a black officer, relatively young, and he even told me like, "Oh my God, I love car chases," and he liked the adrenaline of it, which is something that many officers report. They like the adrenaline of driving fast, which actually makes them very normal. A lot of young men like driving fast. That's car, car insurers figured that out a long time ago. 
he tells me this. He says, yeah, I try to wear it. Because I asked him, do you wear it? Because I'd seen this pattern before. He says, I try to. And then later on in the shift, he's doing close to 100 miles an hour, trying to catch up to a car that has fled, I believe, a traffic stop. And long story short, it's multiple units driving uh, at high rates of speed. He has no seatbelt. I don't know what the other cars were doing. And they lose sight of the car. So essentially, it was just a lot of very dangerous driving for a whole lot of nothing. And I ask him, you know, like, so why, well, why don't you? And he said, well, it's because if I wear my seatbelt, I might not be able to access my gun. And I need to be able to get to my gun unobstructed to potentially address somebody that has a gun. Or he was worried about getting hung up on his equipment. Officers do wear a bunch of stuff, particularly if they have an external carrier. So they might have their radio, their OC spray, a taser, all kinds of things on their front. And he was really worried that a seatbelt might get caught on his gear and prevent him from, once again, being able to quickly exit his vehicle to address a violent threat. What I think you're pointing to is, of course, the deadly irony that officers are far more likely to plow into a light pole or a school bus than they are to get into a shootout in the middle of the day. And this goes back to my earlier point, the danger imperative actually leads officers to engage in behaviors that are far more dangerous than had they not engaged in those behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the aggressive behavior, this kind of like, I got to get there. I mean, you said it was a traffic stop, right? Like all these cops traveling at high speeds to catch someone at a traffic stop so they can jump out of their car and access their weapon. But by not wearing a seatbelt, that's an acceptable danger. And they're already putting themselves in more risk and society in more risk. We've seen cars get thrown off the highway by police in high-speed chases. We've seen regular passers-by being shot by police who are trying to catch a perpetrator and they're shooting at a perpetrator and they shoot through you know, regular people's vehicles. It's not a healthy way to deal with it. And I, and I think that takes me back to what you were saying, like, do we retrain these people? Do we put our finances and, and, and efforts into retraining or do we do something else about it? Because ultimately, if you believe that violence is the logical consequence of an institutional culture that privileges officers survival over public safety, what can the public be doing about that? Like, how do we watch these people that are supposed to be watching us? What should we be doing to say, actually, I think we should be doing this? So I think there's a couple of things. One is kind of the the old saw of any researcher, which is we just need better data. And policing is a place that is ripe for increasing transparency and providing public data. I think oversight starts with that. We just need better sense of where stops are happening, police deployment, response times, misconduct records. There's currently a fight here in Austin for access to the quote-unquote G file, which is essentially the misconduct file of an officer. Some departments have those things public now. Laws have changed in places like New York and Chicago. There was that massive leak through the Invisible Institute. And it's an incredible resource for people to look up officers who are engaging in far more misconduct than others. So I think that's one place to start. And that's like a policy lever. It's a city council thing. You can vote for people that are using that as part of their platform. Like, I just want to increase transparency. And everybody should be about transparency. It's tough to have a leg to stand on that people shouldn't have access to the data that is produced by an institution which is funded with their tax dollars. More broadly, as I alluded to earlier, the conversation around the future of policing, I think, needs to begin with sort of a come to Jesus moment about what policing is. I think that we've spent so much time thinking about how to change the institution, remake the institution, and and force the institution into something else. And I think the history of policing in the US has been halting progress at best and 
decades and many lives and many billions of dollars squandered in the hopes of shifting the institution. And so I think that we actually just start from a place where we just admit to ourselves that policing is violent and it's going to be violent. And in fact, it should be violent because that was the whole point of creating it in the first place was to have a violent arm of the state. Will you talk to that a little bit so people who don't understand that understand that why policing was created in the first place? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so there's this is a this is a much longer way we can do a whole. Other I know podcast we can do a whole episode. other podcast on the history <laughs> of policing. So I'll even just start in the U.S., which is skipping a whole lot of other history across the across the pond. The earliest forms of policing that we had were informal, which is usually how it happens. You don't start with uniform police. You start with informal groups of people that begin to quote unquote police or provide security of various kinds. And in the slaveholding South, that was originally slave patrols. And these original groups, again, they were not called police, they were slave patrols. They had served a function which is very similar of just patrolling and keeping the peace and ensuring that, quote unquote, like the, the dangerous classes, in this case, people who were enslaved, stayed in line. Over time, those groups formally and informally shifted into more formalized forms of policing. They were the early forms of what became the first city departments that were then given uniforms and were then given more tools. And to be clear, this is not something that the North is like excused from. It turns out that departments in the North actively participated in the rounding up of runaways to send back to the South. So there's often this, this there's like some simplistic rhetoric about that, well, it was only like the slave patrols in the South. All of policing was was implicated in a way. Yeah, the North um, doesn't get a pass. Yeah. Yeah, no, they absolutely don't. Sorry, New Yorkers. <laughs> yeah, uh, you blew it too. So, so that's what that that is an incredibly short rundown on sort of the the origins of the institution. But I think it's a good way to look at it. Like consistently, we we started police to protect the community from who was considered a criminal element, to protect property of the rich from the poor, and to basically do patrols to keep people in line. And we haven't really changed that much. It hasn't changed that much. And so what you're saying is, if we want to look at the future of public safety and reimagine what it looks like, it might be something we actually have to reimagine because we're not going to get much further off from how we created it, which is a violent group of people looking to keep people in line. The concept of protect and serve is not actually what the police was created to do. No, I think that the taglines and, and the values that a lot of departments put on their websites, don't get me wrong, I've seen officers behave with bravery. I've seen them behave respectfully. But when rubber meets road, what I've seen far more often is these street-level bureaucrats with limited tools and limited training shuffling around the pieces of a broken society. And it rarely looks valorous. It rarely looks courageous. These are people doing their best on the job, and the most important thing to them is going home at night. And everything within the institution is aligned to underscore and support that goal to the detriment of the public in many cases. Yeah. And again, none of this is universal. There are police who are truly decent people who are working hard to get to know the citizens that they, they are in their community and address their concerns. But then it goes back to would they turn in their fellow officers for breaking the law? questionable, right? And uh, as they say, if there's one bad cop and nine good cops who say nothing, then there's 10 bad cops. And we don't want that. We have to kind of reimagine it. I know that some police forces are trying to reorient the police towards working more closely with local communities, trying to get them engaged rather than to dominate them. But I think you're right. I think there's probably a way to reimagine how we even 
look at the concept of policing because it's not like we're turning around and cutting down crime that much. I live in Los Angeles and I think the solving rate for crime is about 7%. So we're obviously not doing some bang up job at solving crime on top of everything else. So it is something that really needs reimagining and re-envisioning in a society where we all feel safe, including police officers. So thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. Please tell people how they can buy your book and how they can keep up with your work. Absolutely. So my book, The Danger Imperative, Violence, Death, and the Soul of Policing is available on Amazon or anywhere books are sold near you. And if you do snag a copy, and I hope you do, I'd love for you to shoot me a message at www.dangerimperative.com. Let me know what you think about the book. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and other social media as well. Yeah. And thank you for writing this book and talking about what seems to be just this epidemic of police violence. It's almost like we can't go through a day without hearing about a cop killing a civilian or a cop getting hurt. And something clearly needs to be done about it. And I'm really glad people like you are out here talking about it and and really opening our minds to what we really should be imagining for our future. For sure. For sure. And uh, if I can leave listeners with one last thing, I hope that when you do read the book that you come away with it and, and believe when I say that the things that you see happening out there, as tragic as they are in many cases, this is the system working as it was intended. These are the things that are bound to happen because of the system that we designed which is exactly why we have to think of something else. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. So that was Michael Sierra Revelo, author of The Danger Imperative, reminding us that the story of policing in America isn't the story of a few bad apples, but of an institutional structure and system that are essentially not working. The violence we see from our officers is the logical consequence of an institutional culture that privileges officers' survival over public safety. Policing and violence simply go hand in hand. And according to Michael, who's seen much of it up close and personal, we're not going to be able to train ourselves out of the problem. We need to reimagine the entire enterprise of public safety from a whole new starting point. I want to thank Michael for joining us today and you for caring enough about the state of our country to be here. Now go out and make the world a better place. Until next week, PGA. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.